0: Well, this is it. We're at week 11 of our series on the Gospel of John. And uh, this is going to be our final week in this half of the series. That's right. There's two parts. Uh, We're going to come back in January and complete the study of the Gospel of John because we're only going to make it through chapter 10, as you'll see today. When we come back, I'm changing the title slightly. And it's because the second half of the book is dealing with a little bit different aspect of Jesus. We're still looking at his deity Uh, The deity of Jesus as revealed to us in the Gospel of John. But we're going to focus on the fact that he's Jesus, the man. And we've kind of been hammering on that pretty hard over the last 11 weeks. He's Jesus who who was a man, but he was also the Christ. Now, Jesus Christ is not his first and last name. Uh, I grew up for a long time thinking that that was the case, that his name was Jesus Christ. But Christ is the Greek version or the Greek translation of Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the long-awaited one, the, the anointed one of the Jews that they had waited for centuries to show up, and he had. So next half, we're going to take a look at the rest of his life and the rest of the, the circumstances surrounding his life, all the way up to his death, his burial, his resurrection, and ascension. But this week, we're going to wrap up the first half, and we're going to follow up what we talked about last week, And the fact that Jesus was despised, he was the son of God despised by the very people he came to save. Uh, He came to save the Jews. He was a Jew. He was born a Jew. He was born in the lineage of David the king. And yet his own people, as we know in chapter 1 verse 14, didn't receive him. They rejected him. And so we saw last week that the Pharisees in particular, the scribes, the Pharisees, the high priests, the religious leaders of Israel, really were enemies of his. And as time moved on, their intensity, the intensity of their hatred grew. And we saw last week that they actually tried to stone him. And this would not be the last time that they tried to take out their own Messiah, but they refused to see him for who he was. So this week, we're gonna pick up where we left off and we're going to see Jesus revealing himself as the shepherd. That's a motif that was very common in that day because it was an agrarian culture and the people were used to seeing shepherds everywhere. Now, a shepherd was not a position of high esteem. You didn't want your kid to grow up to be a shepherd, but because they were an agrarian culture, many of them did grow up to be shepherds. And so Jesus is going to present himself as the shepherd, the good shepherd. But as we're going to see, it's a contrast to the very men he's just been having an argument with. So let's, let's back up and just see what's going on. At the end of chapter 9, Jesus has been having this confrontation with the religious leaders because he's healed a man who had been blind from birth. In other words, he had never seen the light of day. He'd never seen his own parents. And Jesus miraculously heals him. But the Pharisees are upset because it was done on the Sabbath. And so they're angry with Jesus that he's a lawbreaker. He doesn't keep their rules and regulations according to their standards. And so it created this conversation, this confrontation between Jesus and these men. And near the end of chapter 9, it says, some of these Pharisees heard him say these things about who he was and what he had done and his power and his authority And they said, are we also blind? You remember Jesus said to these men that you can't see. You're You're unable to see who I really am because you refuse to accept who I am by the testimony of God himself. And even through Abraham, your great patriarch, they refused to accept him. And so they're basically saying, are you saying we're blind? Are you saying we don't understand? And so Jesus said to them, if you were blind... If that was your only problem, that you were physically blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say, we see, and your guilt remains. See, their problem wasn't physical blindness, it was spiritual blindness. Their inability to see Jesus for who he was, that he truly was the Messiah, the one that they had waited for for centuries. And everything he did and everything he said gave proof to the fact that he was the Messiah. But once again, they can't see it. They're blind. And so as a result of the fact that they think they see, they're actually condemning themselves and their guilt remains. That's why Jesus said, you will die in your sins because you refuse to accept me. So this whole idea of blindness is is very critical to understanding what happens in chapter 10. Remember, chapter 9 is the healing of this man who was born blind and he gets interrogated by these Pharisees who begin to debate whether he was truly blind. Was he lying? They, they are trying to prove that what Jesus did didn't really happen. And it's going to lead us into everything that takes place in chapter 10. You know, Jesus had a, a lot of strong words to say about these religious leaders. In Matthew chapter 15, here, here's a statement he makes about these very same individuals. He tells his disciples to ignore them, which was really, really pretty radical for him to tell these Jewish men to ignore these religious leaders who were held in high esteem. But he says they're blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person guides another, guess what? They're going to both fall into a ditch, right? It makes no sense for a blind person to lead a blind person. He has no capacity to help the person he's trying to help because he has the same problem. And that's really what Jesus is always trying to teach his disciples in these confrontations with these religious leaders is don't look at them and esteem them. Don't, don't hold them in high honor because they have the same problem you do. They're blind, but they don't realize it. They're ignorant, but they don't understand it. And so Jesus was very harsh when it came to dealing with these religious leaders. And the reason is because they were the shepherds of Israel. Their job was to shepherd God's flock. They had kind of taken over the position of the the prophets and the kings that we saw in the Old Testament. And yet, according to Jesus, they weren't doing a very good job. They wanted to be held in high esteem. They wanted to be revered. They wanted to be seen as righteous and godly men but they weren't shepherding the sheep. As a matter of fact, they're they're basically, according to Jesus, lousy leaders. You didn't want to use them as your model for leadership because they really didn't do it the way God wanted it done, as we're going to see in this passage. So they're the blind leading the blind. They're the foolish leading fools. They're the ignorant trying to teach those who have no knowledge. And they're doing incredible damage to the people of Israel. And that's why Jesus is so opposed to them. And it's because of their arrogance, their pride, their self-righteousness. They, they thought of themselves as better than the common man. As a matter of fact, it, it was believed among the Pharisees and the scribes that the reason the kingdom hadn't come yet the long-awaited kingdom, the reason the Messiah hadn't shown up yet is because of the sins of the people. They were holding back the coming of the Messiah. They despised the common people. And that's really, really clear in what happens in chapter 10. And Jesus is going to expose these men as what they truly are, which is going to be a shock to the disciples and the other Jews who are hearing him say these things. In Mark chapter 6, verse 34, Jesus saw a crowd now he was always followed by crowds but in this passage it says he stepped out of the boat he sees the crowd and he has compassion on them and what happens he sees them as sheep without what a shepherd shepherdless sheep lack of leadership lack of direction nobody taking care of them now again in that cultural context That metaphor would have been fully understood. Sheep without a shepherd was not a good thing. And this is right before Jesus feeds the 5,000. He sees the crowd, he has compassion, because he sees them as shepherdless. And that's not the way God had intended it. So he began to teach them many things. So let's fast forward to chapter 10. In chapter 10, Jesus, just having finished healing this blind man, just having finished debating with these religious leaders, says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. And again, this metaphor would have resonated with these people because this is the world they lived in, an agrarian culture where sheep and shepherds were everywhere. It was part of their economy. So he, he says that if, if you don't do it the right way, you're not the right kind of shepherd. He says, to him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. So there's this contrast being set up by Jesus. He's separating himself from these men. Remember, they're held in high esteem. They're the religious elite of the day, and Jesus is juxtaposing himself with them. He goes on and says, they know his voice. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd. They recognize the voice of the shepherd. And a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know, know the voice of strangers. Now, it wasn't uncommon in that day for uh, shepherds to gather their flock into a common field and let them graze. And at the end of the day, when they went to gather them, they would call them and they would come to their shepherd. So they were all gathered together, all mixed together. And then when the shepherds individually called their sheep, they knew which shepherd to go to. And that's the scene that Jesus is painting. A stranger they will not hear. But again, keep in mind, he's, he's juxtaposing one group of shepherds with another group of shepherds or a shepherd, as we'll see. So it's a contrast. And it's gonna be a very stark contrast, as we'll see. It's the good shepherd versus the bad shepherd. And you could have a bad shepherd. There were bad shepherds in Israel as there are probably bad shepherds somewhere today. So it's a contrast. It's, it's this juxtaposition between one thing and another, but it's Jesus versus The scribes, the Pharisees, the high priests, and the other members of the Sanhedrin. So let's take a look at the bad shepherd. What is Jesus telling us? He's warning his disciples to not be fooled. These guys look great. They they have all the attributes, the outer signs of a shepherd, but you got to be really careful. you got to watch out because they're dangerous. He calls them thieves, robbers, and strangers. They look like one thing, but they're really not. You know, elsewhere Jesus refers to the to the uh, Pharisees as hypocrites, which is a Greek word that was used to refer to an actor in a play. He he would put on a mask and he would pretend to be something or someone other than who he truly was. And he, that was a common um, name that Jesus used of the Pharisees: that they were play actors, they were pretenders, they were frauds, fakes. And so they are really thieves and robbers and strangers, but they try to present themselves as shepherds. But here's the deal. They don't care for the sheep. They have ulterior motives. There's something else driving their behavior. And that's what Jesus is trying to warn his disciples about. Because these men, no matter how great they look, are self-serving and selfish in everything they, they do. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus slams the Pharisees for their self-promotion, their desire to pray in open so that everyone could see them, their wearing of fancy robes so that people would have as- held them in high esteem. They they wanted the best seats at the at the banquets. They were all about self-promotion, and they really didn't care about the sheep. And and so what Jesus is really doing here is, is describing the characteristics by using the negative of what a good shepherd really is. A good shepherd is not a thief. He's not a robber. He's not self-promoting. He's selfless. And he's a giver, not a taker. And and you have to keep in mind the the scene here because it's Jesus, his disciples, and, and a crowd of his followers. And then some of these scribes and Pharisees, all still in the crowd, listening to him say these things. And these men were smart. They got what he was saying. They knew he was referring to them. And you can imagine how angry they were becoming the longer he talked. He's describing them as thieves and robbers and and being self-serving and self-promoting. And it reminds me of a prophetic statement that's recorded in Ezekiel chapter 34. One of the things I love about the Gospels is they reconnect us to the Old Testament Some of us are guilty of just falling in love with the New Testament and and loving that part of the Scriptures, but ignoring the Old Testament. But to fully understand what God is doing when it comes to the Word of God, you have to read it in its entirety. And so we're going to look backwards and see what did the prophet Ezekiel write in chapter 34, verses 2 through 6. Now listen carefully. This is God speaking, he says, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. See, this is, this is a long time problem. It's been going on for centuries. Here's what he says, give them this message from the sovereign Lord, the ruler over all things. What sorrow awaits you shepherds who feed yourselves instead of your flocks? Shouldn't shepherds feed their sheep? You drink the milk, you wear the wool, you butcher the best animals, But he goes on, but you let your flock starve. You have not taken care of the weak. You have not tended the sick or bound up the injured. You have not gone looking for those who have wandered away and are lost. Instead, you have ruled over them with harshness and cruelty. So my sheep have been scattered without a shepherd. Does that sound familiar? Remember chapter six of Mark? He steps out of the boat. He looks at the crowd and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. That's where he got this phrase from. So my sheep have been scattered without a shepherd and they are easy prey for any wild animal. They have wandered through all the mountains and all the hills across the face of the earth, yet no one has gone to search for them. So here we are hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel and he's indicting the current shepherds of Israel. And he has some very, very harsh things to say about them. The priests, the kings, those who led the people of Israel were lousy leaders. They were terrible shepherds. And all of this is true of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. So you have the bad shepherd. What about the good shepherd? You see, there hadn't been a good shepherd in Israel in a long, long time. Now, there were shepherds out there in the fields. There were good shepherds and decent shepherds. But he's talking about a different kind of shepherd, a spiritual shepherd. And there hadn't been a good one in centuries. As a matter of fact, the last of the prophets was a guy named Malachi. And when Malachi finished prophesying, there was a 400-year gap in time, a 400-year period of time in which God no longer spoke to his people. There were no prophets. And it's the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's broken by the coming of John the Baptist, the last of the prophets. But there's this prophet Malachi who also had some serious things to say, and he said it 400 years earlier under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what it says. This is chapter four of Malachi, verses five through six. And this is God speaking through his prophet, and he says, "'I will send you Elijah the prophet "'before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes.'" and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I, God, come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So here's this prophecy given by God to Malachi, and it's the last thing he ever wrote, and it's the last word from God before the 400 years of silence took place. And he's talking about the coming of Elijah. I will send you Elijah, who is another Old Testament prophet. Now, This prophecy is partially fulfilled in the coming of John the Baptist. So again, Malachi prophesies. It's the last thing he writes. There's a 400-year gap in time, and then John the Baptist shows up. And here's what Luke records. This is the angel speaking to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, telling him about the birth that's about to take place of John. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him, now catch this, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the people, ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, what's the angel doing? He's going back and he's quoting the last words written by the last prophet 400 years earlier. And he's letting Zechariah know, who's a priest, that this is a fulfillment, a partial fulfillment of that ancient prophecy. And his son's going to play a major role because he's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's not Elijah. He's coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. So let's go back to chapter 10. Jesus has declared what the bad shepherds are like, and now he's talking about the good shepherd, and it says this figure of speech, this discussion about shepherds, both good and bad, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. The 12 disciples didn't get it. The other followers didn't get it, and even the Jewish leaders didn't fully understand other than the fact that they think it's a slight, it's a slam against them. They didn't understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus once again says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He extends the metaphor further. Not only am I a shepherd, but I'm the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So he's taking it a step further. He's elaborating on the metaphor, and he says, I'm the door. I'm the means by which the sheep get into the sheepfold. In that day, the sheepfold was usually made out of rocks, a wall of rocks and They would lead the sheep in, and and oftentimes the the shepherd himself would lay in the doorway at night and sleep there to protect the sheep from wild animals. He was literally the door, and I think that's partially what Jesus Christ is saying here. He's using that common metaphor, that common picture that they understood, but he's describing himself as the door. And and the picture that it paints for me is one of accessibility, the ability to access something the ability to get into where you need to get and to leave when you need to leave. There's this in and out thing going on. It involves egress and ingress, going and coming, entering and leaving. And there's all kinds of imagery loaded into this because Jesus is offering them something pretty incredible. In John chapter 14, he's going to tell them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't access the Father. You can't enter into his presence without going through me. Why? Because I'm the door, he says. And once again, the the religious leaders were offended by this because they thought they had access already. They thought they were already children of God. They were descendants of Abraham. They had full, complete access to God because of their exterior semblance of righteousness. But no, Jesus is telling them something completely different. The sheep can only enter in through him because he's the door. And it says that you can go in and out. They have the ability, again, to go in and out, ingress and egress. And to me, it's a picture of freedom, freedom in Christ. See, people who are outside of Christ think they're free, but they're not. They're actually slaves of sin. They can only do what they do. That's why we shouldn't be shocked at the way the world behaves, because they have no other choice but then to behave the way they do, because they are slaves. They're not free. They're captives. And they answer to the enemy. But see, when we come to faith in Christ, we get freedom. We're we're able to do things we didn't do before, we couldn't do before. And this idea is is really promoted in the words of Jesus in chapter 8, verse 36. He says, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Now, once again, that statement offended the Jewish leaders because they saw themselves as free. We're, we're not enslaved to anybody. And he corrected them and let them know that, no, you really are. You think you're free, but you're really captives. You think you see, but you're really blind. You think you're healthy, but you really need a physician. See, these men couldn't see the truth about themselves. And salvation is liberating. It sets us free. It releases us from captivity to sin. We can live in a way that we never were free to live before. It's not restrictive. You know, a lot of people refuse Christ or refuse to accept Christ because they think it's going to hold them back. It's going to be like cold water poured over their life. They're not going to be able to do the things they used to do, have the fun they used to have. It's restrictive, but in the truth of it, it's very, very liberating. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell them, that you'll be able to come in and go out. You'll have access, and you'll be able to, to move in and out in your relationship. That doesn't mean stray and then come back. It means full freedom to live the full life I've, been, I've called you to live. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly. That's what this is talking about. Rewarding, not repressive. Exhilarating, not restrictive. And yet, the Jewish leaders were all about restrictions. They were all about rules. They were all about um, things you have to do to earn a right relationship with God and to keep God happy. And see, Jesus came to set them free from all of that and to give them a reward that they never could have imagined otherwise. I love Psalm 23, and we're all familiar with it, but let's think about it in this context. Remember, he's talking about himself as a shepherd, the good shepherd. Listen to what it says. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need, full access to everything that I need, He lets me rest in green meadows. In other words, he allows me to have relaxation. He takes care of me. He leads me beside peaceful streams. I go in and rest. I go out and I find peaceful streams, places to feed all the sustenance I need. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. See, this is what Jesus is trying to offer to these people. In contrast to what the religious leaders were offering, which was a life of rules and regulations and rituals. That's why Jesus said, come to me all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, these people were beaten down and burdened down by carrying all these restrictive rules and regulations, and Jesus came to set them free from that. And then in verse 10, There's that famous verse that we all know, and I just quoted part of it. The thief comes only to steal and kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see the contrast? He's still contrasting himself between the bad shepherds, the Pharisees, the scribes, and himself as the good shepherd. Now, this verse, what's really interesting about it is that we often think of it in terms of Satan, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, and and that's true, but let's keep it within its context. He's talking about the religious leaders. Now, we know because of what he said about them that they're sons of Satan. They're like their father, Satan, and so he's also a thief, and he comes to steal and kill and destroy, but he's literally accusing these men of being thieves The thief comes to steal, steal, kill, and destroy. And he's accusing them of those very things, stealing, killing, and destroying. What did it say in Ezekiel? What did God have to say about the the spiritual leaders of Israel back in that day? Same basic problem. They were fleecing the flock. They were feeding themselves off the flock. And that's exactly what these men are doing. They're using the people to line their own pockets, to build their self-esteem and self-worth, all the while holding these people back and keeping them from recognizing Jesus for who he is. As a matter of fact, we know already that they had told people, if you follow this man named Jesus, we will cast you out of the synagogue. We will excommunicate you. We saw that in chapter 9 with the parents of this man who was healed by Jesus from his blindness His parents were afraid to speak up for him because they knew if they did, it would sound like they were on Jesus' side and they would be kicked out of the synagogue. So they said, hey, he's an adult, go talk to him. See, this is what's going on here. These men were guilty of the same thing as those religious leaders hundreds of years earlier that God condemned. They're destroying. They're fleecing the flock. Let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 34, but in verse 10, it says, Thus says the Lord, I am against the shepherds. Now, that's a scary thing to think about, right? That God would stand against you. But it's incredibly dangerous to claim to be a shepherd for God, caring for the people of God, and actually be a thief and a robber and a stranger. Because God says, I'm against you. I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves In other words, to profit from my sheep. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. You're feasting on my sheep. You're eating my flock. Why? Because they might be food for you. And so here we have in Ezekiel, again, a condemnation of God against the shepherds. And it's the very thing that Jesus is trying to communicate hundreds of years later to his 12 disciples, those crowds who are following him, And he's directing it at those who were supposed to be leading them. See, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm not like you are. I'm different. I'm the good shepherd. You're the bad shepherd by inference. You're exactly what Ezekiel talked about. But I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He doesn't feed off the sheep. He actually feeds the sheep and he actually is willing to die for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, does just the opposite. See, Jesus was the good shepherd. He came that they might have life. What kind of life? Abundant life, but also eternal life. Abundant life here and now, but eternal life forevermore. He could offer things to these people that these religious leaders could never offer. Why? Because he's the good shepherd. See, the good shepherd is selfless, not selfish. He's not self-promoting. He gives away himself. Mark 10, 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those are the words of Jesus himself. That's why he came, to give himself away selflessly. The good shepherd is willing to sacrifice anything and everything. And we know because we're on the other side of the cross, that's exactly what he did. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 Timothy. See, these men couldn't say that. They didn't make any sacrifices on behalf of the people. It was all about them. It was all about their self-esteem, their self-worth, their standing in the community, their clothes, their money, the, the accolades that they received. But see, Jesus is a different kind of shepherd. He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He goes on and says, these other kinds of shepherds, what they do is they, they run at the sign of danger. As soon as it gets tough, they get going. The wolf snatches them up and scatters them. So they walk away. They run away from the sheep. They bail on the sheep because they really don't care for the sheep. And at the first sign of trouble, they run. And he flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. He's in it for the money. He's in it for what he gets out of it. And sadly, there are many who stand in pulpits today who are in it for the same reason, for what they get out of it. The the pride, the arrogance, the, the esteem, the money that's associated with it. And Jesus has nothing but condemning words for those kinds of people then and now. Once again, in verse 14, he reiterates, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. They don't care. These shepherds don't care. I do care. And I'm willing to lay down my life for those sheep. And he ultimately did. He sacrificed everything. See, he does just what his father would do. He cares. He has compassion just like his father had compassion on his flock. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, my sheep know me and I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. And he says something really, really fascinating when you consider the context. He's speaking to 12 Jewish disciples, a predominantly Jewish crowd, and most certainly Jewish Pharisees and scribes. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now, I don't think anybody in the crowd got it but he's making a statement about something that's going to happen. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock with one shepherd. I have other sheep. See, Jesus as the Messiah is coming to save more than just the people of Israel, which was news to these, Jew- these Jews, especially the disciples. They had never thought about that. They had never considered that, that he was going to have other sheep who are not of this fold, not of the, the Hebrew nation, and they were going to become part of one flock with one shepherd, Jesus Christ. See, this is an amazing revelation that Jesus is presenting to these people. And once again, they don't necessarily get it. But Paul got it. The apostle Paul, who would come later on after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He would have a visitation from the resurrected Jesus, and he would be commissioned by Jesus to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And here's what he wrote to the believers in Galatia who were predominantly Gentiles. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and all who've been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you were all one in Christ Jesus. Here's Paul later on describing what Jesus came to do and did do, that many people, both Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, from all walks of life, from every culture, were coming to faith in him and becoming part of this new community, this new family, the family of God. So once again, Jesus says it all is going to take place because I am the good shepherd and I'm going to willingly lay down my life. And he says, no one takes it from me. In other words, you men, you Pharisees think you can stone me. You think you can have me arrested. You think you can put me on trial and you can kill me, but you can't take my life from me. I willingly lay it down. I have full control. He says, I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down And I have authority to take it up again, no matter what you think. No matter who you think I am or who you don't think I am, you have no power over me. I have power over you. What a a powerful statement on Jesus' part that he has the authority, the right to lay down his life. It's all about authority. Everything Jesus did was to demonstrate his authority. His power and authority given to him by God the Father. And so he says, all the way up to the, the point that I die, I am in full control. You don't have control over me. God has given me the right to give up my life. That's a strange th- statement, right? It's a strange thought that Jesus was given by his heavenly father the right to sacrifice his life because it was part of the divine plan. John five twenty one says, "...for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will." Jesus had the right to extend life, but he also has the right to sacrifice his life. The first chapter of John's gospel told us that Jesus is the author of all life. He was at the creation. Everything that exists, exists because of him and through him. And here he's reiterating that I have the power to give life, but I'm going to do it by giving my life willingly, sacrificially, selflessly. And then here's the key. This is what the entire Christian religion hinges on, that he has the right and the power to take it back up again. Not just to die a martyr, but to be raised again as a savior, because that's the key. Without the resurrection, we have no hope, Paul says. But we do have hope because there was a resurrection. He had the right to take up his life again. That because he was obedient all the way to the point of death, Philippians chapter 2, he has the right to take his life up again. And Paul tells us about this in his letter to the Corinthians. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried, he gave his life, and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. had the right to lay it down. He has the right to, to lift it back up, to be lifted up by God the Father as proof that he was who he claimed to be and had done what he had been sent to do. And he was raised back to life. He was handed over to die because of our sins and he was raised to life to make us right with God. See, all of this made no sense to the people standing in front of Jesus. It makes sense to us because we're on the other side of the cross, but this was revolutionary news. And it went over their heads. It didn't settle into their hearts. Even the disciples didn't fully understand all that Jesus was saying. It would be a long time before they were able to grasp the significance of these statements. So how was it received? How did the people respond to this? Now here's what we know. Jesus said in verse 3 and 5, "...the sheep hear his voice, and he leads them out. A stranger they will not follow." Now we know this, in that crowd, I don't know how how many people were there. We know there were 12 disciples, a handful of scribes and Pharisees and and a crowd made up of various kinds of people from all walks of life. We don't know how many of them heard his voice. We don't know how many were his sheep. We do know that at least 11 of those disciples were of his flock and would eventually step into the kingdom because they believed who he was and would receive the Holy Spirit. But is this how everybody heard him? Well, we know from verse 19, it says there was a great division. So not everybody got it. Not everybody accepted it. Not everybody fully understood that, oh, you're the good shepherd, and we're going to follow you. We must be your sheep. We hear your voice. No, there was a, a, a division. Some in the crowd said, he's got a demon. He's crazy. Remember, his own family said he was nuts. They don't know what to do with this guy. They don't understand the way he talks, the things he does. He's got power, but he seems to be offending the religious leaders. He's just this odd duck that they can't put a label on. And others said, no, these are the words not of somebody who's crazy or demon-possessed. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? They're, They're thinking back about that man who had his sight restored to him but they're in division. They're in turmoil. They don't know what to think or say or do. So what happens next? This is fascinating to me. And this is why it's so important to read scripture and keep it in its context. Beginning in verse 22, something significant happens, but it follows in the footsteps of everything we just looked at. The healing of the man born blind, the argument with the Pharisees, and the statements regarding the good shepherd and the bad shepherd. Here's what happens. It's the time of the Feast of Dedication. It takes place in Jerusalem. It's winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple as he was prone to do. But he's in a specific place, the colonnade of Solomon. So what is that? And why is it important to this context? Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior sent from God he's the Christ. He's the Lamb of God. And he's walking in this place called the Colonnade of Solomon. And he's walking primarily among Gentiles, because this was a part of the court of the temple grounds that was reserved for Gentiles only. If you were a proselyte to Judaism, as a Gentile, you could only go into this court. You couldn't enter any other area It was reserved for them. They were considered to be Jews because they had converted to Judaism, but they could only go into this area. So where's Jesus walking? He's walking among Gentiles. What did Jesus just say? There are sheep who are not of this flock, and he's walking among them. That's why the context is so important. This is the only place those Gentiles could go on the entire temple complex. And Jesus is walking with them. So what happens? It says some Jews came to them. Now, every time you see Jews in the gospels, it's usually referring to these religious leaders. They come to him in this temple area reserved for Gentiles, which I'm sure was not something they wanted to do, but they confronted him there because they wanted to make a point. They said, how long will you keep us in suspense? How long will you not tell us the truth? Are you the Christ? If so, tell us plainly. Tell us who you are. Tell everybody here that you're the Christ. And notice that they use the term Christ rather than Messiah because that's the Greek version of the word in a courtyard full of Gentiles. Tell us that you're the Christ. Be plain about it. Quit mincing your words. Quit speaking cryptically and just go out and say it. And Jesus said, I told you, but you don't believe. I've already told you a hundred times and you won't believe me. You refuse to believe me. He says, the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. See, this is why the context is so important. He's just finished talking about the good shepherd and the bad shepherd and that my sheep hear my voice and there are sheep who are not of this flock and he's standing among them. These Jews come to him and he says, you're not my sheep. And by inference, some of these are. Some of these will be, but you're not. And what a tremendous slight to these men. It's a a brick to the forehead. It's a blow to their bloated egos that Jesus would say this about them. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me, but you don't because you're not my sheep. He says, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. But what did Jesus say to them a few chapters earlier? You will die in your sins. Why? Because you refuse to believe who I am. And yet my sheep will receive eternal life. They'll never perish. They will never be snatched out of my hand. They can't lose that relationship. And so once again, there's a conflict. Once again, there's a battle. And so the Jews, what do they do? They don't know anything else than to pick up stones to stone him. They're angry. They're frustrated. And Jesus says, why why are you going to stone me? For what work have I done that you're going to stone me? What am I guilty of that you want to kill me? See, he knows their hearts. He knows what they're doing. They want to put him to death. And they go on and say, it's not because of a good work that you've done. It's because you're a blasphemer. It's because you claim to be God. You make yourself out to be God. That's why we're going to stone you. It's not for any good work that you've done. All your works are of Satan. We're stoning you because you claim to be God. Well, he's the son of God. Then it goes on and tells us they try to arrest him, but he escapes from their hands. But there's a there's a really interesting thing right in the middle of this that I want to just end with, because this is a great way to summarize everything we've looked at for 10 chapters. It says after this confrontation, after they try to stone him, after they try to arrest him. They say John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. Now, this is not the Jews. This is those Gentiles standing in the courtyard of Solomon, the colonnade of Solomon, and they speak of John the Baptist and say, everything John the Baptist said about this guy has come true. And it says, many believed in him there. And yet, guess what? Not the Pharisees, not these religious leaders. And and, and they say, you call yourself God. God. And Jesus, this is where I want to end on. Jesus says something to them that's pretty important. He he says, is it not written in your law? Is it not written in the word that you revere so highly, of which you're the experts? Is it not written in your law, I said you were God's? He, He quotes the Old Testament scriptures. And in particular, he's quoting a psalm, a psalm of Asaph. He said, if he, God, called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, why do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I say I am the son of God. See, he's going to use the scriptures against them and he quotes from Psalm 82. Now follow this closely because this is really important. Here's what it says. He, He quotes this one section. I say you are God's. You are all children of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals and fall like every other ruler. See, Jesus is quoting a passage they would have been very familiar with, but he's giving it a meaning they didn't understand or they wouldn't have had about it. He says, you are gods. This is what God calls human beings. You are gods, but you're all going to die and fall like every other ruler. So let's look at the context. Once again, context is everything. Here's what verses two through six say. How long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Then he goes on. Rescue the poor and helpless. This is God speaking through Asaph in this Psalm. Rescue the poor and helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. But these oppressors, these thieves and robbers and strangers know nothing. They're ignorant. They wander about in darkness while the whole world is shaken to the core. You see what Jesus has done is he's reached back into their scriptures of which they're the experts and he says, don't you understand that God called you gods, little gods, then why are you so offended that I call myself the son of God? Why does that offend you? Don't you even understand your own scriptures? And this statement that we're gonna wrap up with, I am the son of God is what the first 10 chapters of this book have all been about. He has called himself the bread of life. He has called himself the light of the world. He has referred to himself as the door of the sheep and I am the good shepherd. I am all these things, but ultimately I am, Jesus says, the son of God but you refuse to receive me. So here's your questions for further thought. The son of God has chosen you, has chosen to be your shepherd and my shepherd. That was his choice. And he's willingly laid down his life for us. He sacrificed himself on our behalf. How does this impact you and how can you best show your gratitude? Does it impact you? Do you think about it often enough? And when you do think about it, How do you show gratitude for what he's done for you? Secondly, I want you to go back and read Luke 4, verses 18 through 19. In what ways does this passage describe your condition prior to coming to faith in Jesus? See, we got to remember where we came from. We got to remember that we were blind, that we were deaf, that we were uh, spiritually starving, that we were helpless and hopeless, and then he became our good shepherd and gave his life on our behalf. And then finally, when was the last time you heard the voice of the good shepherd? How does he speak to you and how effectively do you listen when he does? When's the last time you listened to Jesus? When's the last time you heard Jesus? See, for the last 11 weeks, he's been speaking to you and I through this book called the Gospel of John. And he's asking you to hear his his voice. Listen to his voice. Recognize him for who he is. He's the son of God. He's the good shepherd. He's the door of the sheep. He's the bread of life. He's the lamb of God. He's all those things for you and I. And as we move into the holiday season, I think it's so critical that we go back and understand who he is and what he's done and show him the gratitude for all that he's done. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this incredible passage. Thank you for sending your son to die in my place and in the place of the men who are listening to this message. Father, I pray that over the holidays we would not just approach them the way we always do, but we would approach them with a sense of gratitude for what they represent. They are reminders of the fact that you sent your son in the form of an innocent baby. He grew to, grew to be a man, he, he lived a sinless life, and he died a sinner's death in my place and in their place. And that because of that, Father, Because he became the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And then he called us and we heard his voice. We came to him. And Father, we have a relationship with you because of him. Show us how to show our gratitude. And I pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You guys have a wonderful holiday and we'll see you in January. And we'll send you more information about when that's going to start. But have a great holiday.